Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. The title of my sermon today is called, uh, Here He Comes. Everybody say, Here He Comes. That wasn't very loud. That was kind of uh, underwhelming. Let me hear everybody say, here he comes. comes. Okay, now I want you to say it like you just saw the heavens open and Jesus on that day appears and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. And we say, when we see him, Okay, so I'm going to read this passage of Scripture. Revelation 19, starting with verse 11. Now, I want you to to realize this is just the 19th chapter, and we have to get to chapter 20, chapter 21, and chapter 22. So there's a little bit, uh, there's a little bit still to cover, but we're getting close. I'm going to read this passage. Listen, this is from the NIV. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice he judges and wages war his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Take in the image. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's that's a heavy heavy sentence right there. We're going to break it down in a minute. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe. And on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown 
alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. My God is bigger than your God. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Revelation 19. So I'm going to dissect this a little bit. But before we do, I wrote a song with my friend Mitch Wong uh, from this passage of Scripture. And I want them to play the song. And I think you have lyrics. Can you put the lyrics up as we play the song? Let's try it. It's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. this. There is no defying you. Woo! Sovereign strong, you will subdue as you come riding. Yeah! King of kings and Lord of lords, the victory is yours. The victory see it? Can you see it? See him riding? And the heavens were opened. 
Jesus roar. Jesus, you will reign forevermore. King of kings. Jesus, you Say the victory is yours. In perfect judgment, you wage war. The victory is yours. Jesus, you. Once more say, Jesus, you will reign forever and evermore. Ah, I like that song. I don't know what that's going to happen on uh, online. Uh, yeah, I'm just sitting here in a chair. We're listening to somebody else sing a song, but you got to capture this message. See what John sees. This is the fourth time in the book of Revelation. I feel like a teacher if I'm sitting down. This is going to be a teaching day. This is the fourth time in the book of Revelation that we see the verb open. The first time was Revelation, the fourth chapter. I don't know if you remember that, that week when we talked from the fourth chapter. Come up here. You remember that? Chapter 4, verse 1, and I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. I knew uh, I, as I was driving to church this morning, I knew I was going to be hovering over this statement about the open heaven. And as we leave our neighborhood and start this direction, I see in the distance, it's all cloudy, it's gray clouds, but way in the distance, there were shafts of light beaming down in every direction. And Nicole and I looked and it was beautiful. And I was like, it's like a God wink. The heavens, I, I, I see the heavens opening in these shafts of light coming out. It was this, this stamp that God was saying, you're on the right path today. Yeah. I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. The second time we hear this verb is the 11th chapter, the 11th chapter, the 19th verse, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. The third time was the 15th chapter, verse 5. After these things, I looked, and the temple 
of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And then now the fourth time in the passage of scripture from today, and I saw heaven open. want to point out that the four uses of this word, this verb, open, divide John's vision into five major sections that we're going to call windows. For today, these sections of the book of Revelation, uh, it's after reading and studying, I'm discovering through uh, months of study that these four times the word open is used divides the book of Revelation into five sections, not including the prologue and the epilogue. <laughs> uh, my son, the writer, uh, likes the use of those words. So with the prologue and the epilogue, the whole book then has seven sections, but the main vision itself is divided up into five windows, we're going to call them today, okay? Yeah. Let's review what we've learned so far. In window one, we covered it in the beginning back in January. Revelation, the first chapter in the ninth verse that took us all the way to the third chapter in the 22nd verse. I heard behind me a loud voice. And when John turns to see the voice, he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the seven lampstands, which he discovers represent churches in Asia Minor. In the middle, he sees one like the Son of Man. You remember? He sees the risen and glorified Jesus standing in the middle of his churches. Jesus then dictates seven messages to the seven churches. In window two, starting with the fourth chapter and the first verse, and we're going to take it all the way to the 11th chapter, the scene that John is describing to us. It starts in the fourth chapter, ends in the 11th chapter. I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. I'm going to say that again. I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And John sees a throne with someone sitting on it. In the someone's right hand is a scroll sealed with seven seals. He hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed and is worthy to open the scroll. When he turns to see the lion, he instead sees a lamb. Do you remember that Sunday we talked about that? Looking as if it had been slain. The lamb comes up to the one who's seated on the throne, takes the scroll, and one by one opens the seven seals, leading to the sounding of seven trumpets. The vision culminates with heaven singing, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Window three starts in the 11th chapter, verse 19, and it takes us up to the 15th chapter. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And John sees in the temple the Ark of the Covenant. He sees through it to the cosmic, he sees through the cosmic 
war of all wars. John sees a series of signs. He sees a woman who is about to give birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Then he sees a great red dragon which tries to kill the child. But God takes the child, Jesus Christ, up to his throne. The dragon is furious. Since he cannot get to the child, he goes after the child's disciples. But not directly. He goes after them and us through two beasts, one from the sea representing dragon-manipulated political power, and the other from the earth, the false prophet, representing dragon-manipulated religious power. The struggle continues until John sees one like a son of man in chapter 14, verse 14, who comes with a sharp sickle in his hand going to reap the harvest. All of this culminates in those who had come victorious from the beast singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Do you remember several Sundays back, I sang you that little song? Who will not fear with reverence and awe? Who will not fear the Lord, the Lord? That, was the, that song is the song of Moses. Window four picks up in the 15th chapter, starting with verse five, and it takes us to the 19th chapter, verse 10. We talked about this last week. I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. There it is again. And John sees seven angels with seven bowls of judgment. One by one, they pour the judgment of God upon the earth. No fractions this time. When the seals were broken, it affected one-third of a particular population. When the trumpets sounded, it affected one half of the population. In this final pouring of the bowls, there were no fractions involved. It leads up to the destruction of Babylon, the mother of harlots. It culminates in a fourfold hallelujah. Nicole mentioned at the beginning, hallelujah. Praise you, Yah. Praise you, the short name of God, <laughs> Yah. Hallelujah. Because, number one, Babylon has been judged. And number two, the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And the Lamb's bride is ready for the wedding. And now we get to window five passage of scripture today, Revelations 19, starting with verse 11. But this, this whole portion, this section takes us all the way into the 22nd chapter. And I'm not going to go through all of that, but that's, this is the, the, the fifth section, the fifth window. The last major section of Revelation culminates in the descent of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the new creation. And I saw heaven open. What do we see when heaven itself is opened? We see a person. And behold, says John, a command. Look, 
It is the command of the last book of the Bible. We are not commanded to go or to be or to witness or to love or even to overcome. We are commanded to look. The implication being that if we look, if we see what John sees, we will go and be and witness and love and overcome. I saw heaven opened and look, a white horse and he who sat upon it. I saw heaven opened and what we see is not something but someone. Heaven is open and we see Jesus. It turns out that what John is describing in the 19th chapter and following is the fulfillment of a promise Jesus made to the first group of disciples. A promise made before they actually became disciples. A kind of, this is what you'll be getting yourselves into if you follow me promise. In A.D. 29 or so, John the baptizer, John the Baptist, was walking with some of his disciples. He sees Jesus coming. Pointing to Jesus, he says, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's found in John, the first chapter. Uh, some theologians believe that the book of John and the book of Revelation are bookends to the story of John's life. One of John's disciples, Andrew, a fisherman, begins to follow Jesus. Andrew, Peter's brother, Andrew was first a disciple of John the Baptist. But when John makes the announcement, Andrew follows him. He goes and gets his brother, Simon, and brings him to Jesus. Jesus looks at the fisherman and says, you are Simon. You shall be called Cephas, or rock. That's John 1, 42. The next day, Jesus calls a man named Philip to join the group. Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. You remember this story? And Nathaniel comes to Jesus. Jesus says, look, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. That's verse 47. Nathaniel is impressed that Jesus knows him. But Jesus says, you shall see greater things than these. You shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That's in verses 50 and 51. Jesus fulfilled that promise to John in A.D. 96. John wrote the promise. And now in A.D. 96, the promise is fulfilled on the prison island of Patmos. And I saw heaven open. And look, a person. Heaven is all about a person. Which is why the last book of the Bible is all about a person. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation by Jesus about Jesus. This scene more than any other in the book demonstrates the fact. I heard a story 
I've actually heard many stories similar to this one, but this particular one, I heard a story of a, a grandfather while taking his last breath on his deathbed said to his brothers and sons who were present, oh boys, he's beautiful. And then he died. Heaven is all about a person. That same person who has been breaking through to us in nearly every scene of the last book of the Bible. Remember, apocalypse, I told you the definition of that word. We've made it the scary word, but apocalypse means to break through. Jesus is breaking through into our world in this whole last book of the Bible. As we near the end of our journey, we've got a few weeks still, but as we end, we're, we're getting to the, the climax of this whole incredible book. I want to draw attention to the structure of the book. The theology of the book is tied up and manifested through the structure of the book. Notice carefully, and I have a, uh, I have a little slide. You guys have the first slide ready for me? I want you to notice carefully how the fifth window of the book parallels with the first. We're going to talk about the prologue and the epilogue. Are we there? Do we have it? There we go. The prologue, John says, Jesus is coming in Revelation 1-7. Next. The epilogue, now this is now in verse 22. Jesus says three times in verse 7, in verse 12, in verse 20, I am coming. Okay. Prologue. God says, for the time is near. Revelations 1. Notice this is the first chapter. Jump into the 22nd chapter. For the time is near. Back to the prologue. Chapter 1. God says, I am Alpha and Omega. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. That's 1 and 8 and 117. Now the epilogue, verse chapter 22, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. First window. Let me see. No, we're not ready for that yet. We're going to go there. Just Let's go ahead and put the slide up. In the epilogue, we come back to what is the prologue. So, two with the windows, one and five, consider a few examples with these windows. I told you these are the sections of the Bible that we're calling windows. In the first window, Jesus makes tremendous promises to the seven churches. In the fifth window, each of those promises is now fulfilled. In the first window, he promises access to the tree of life in chapter 2. In the fifth window, chapter 22, access to the tree of life is given. In the first window, chapter 1, I have the keys of death and Hades. In chapter 20, the fifth window, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The first window, chapter 1, his eyes were like a flame of fire. In the fifth window, chapter 19, his eyes are a flame of fire. 
I love this. I love, I love how this all is connected and comes together. In the first window, chapter 1, he is called the faithful witness. In the 19th chapter, he's called faithful and true. First window, chapter 2, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but the one who receives it. Chapter 19, the fifth window, he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. I'm almost done with the first and the fifth windows. In the first window, chapter 1, Jesus is clothed in a robe. In the fifth window, chapter 19, Jesus is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. I'm going to come back to that. First window, chapter 3, the promise of the new Jerusalem. 21st chapter, the fifth window, the descent of the new Jerusalem. In the first window, chapter 2, their promise, I will give them the morning star. He said that to one of the churches. In the fifth window, chapter 22, I am the bright and morning star. In the first window, chapter 2, he will rule the nations with a rod iron. In chapter 19, the fifth window, he will rule them with a rod of iron. And finally, the first window, chapter 1, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And in chapter 19, in the fifth window, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. And I saw heaven opened, and look, this time, Jesus appears riding on a horse. The horse is a symbol of war. This time, he appears as a warrior. In the first century, when a king rode a horse, he was riding to war. If he rode a donkey, he was riding to peace. On Palm Sunday, we immediately think of that, don't we? Jesus rode a donkey into the city of Jerusalem acting out the prophecy of Zechariah, the ninth chapter, starting with verse 9, and I think they may have it. I'm going to read it to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea. But now, in the 19th chapter of Revelation, Jesus rides on a horse, for he is riding to war. In this scene, Jesus is coming for what throughout church history has been called the final battle. Everybody say final battle. Although there is something to putting it that way, it's a little misleading. Why? For the simple reason that the final battle to which Jesus rides is never fought. Think about it. Think about it. Whew. It's never fought because it need not be fought. The final battle, in all capital letters, was the cross. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, Jesus triumphed 
over the principalities and powers. That's in Colossians 2. The final battle, small case letters, need not be fought because the final battle, all capital letters, has already been fought and won. Jesus Christ rides to finally implement the victory of the cross. When he shows up on the white horse, he comes to implement the cross, the victory of the cross. He rides to lock up the real enemies of God, the arch enemies of God, the beast from the sea and the false prophet, the beast from the earth. In the next scene, which we'll get to in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 15, Jesus will lock up the dragon who uses the two beasts. Jesus will then lock up death in Hades. He's going to throw all of these powers into the lake of fire. The first permanent Permanent residents of hell are the Antichrist and his false prophet. Permanent. Let me get my word right. My daughter and my son are laughing because I stumbled on that word. So I'll keep going. Just notice that if I ever mess up, if anybody gets it, they get it. And I get it after church. So if I just go ahead and lay it out, it'll be done, right? As all of this is about to happen in verses 17 through 21, an invitation goes out to the birds of the air to come to a supper. In the previous scene, we talked about it last week, we heard an invitation to a different supper, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But here we encounter what is called the supper of God. That's what he calls it, a gory event. Carson needs to hear this part. He likes, he likes all of this kind of violence. God help us with Carson. John is telling us that everyone's destiny is a supper. Everyone's destiny is a supper. Both of these suppers are prepared by God. One is a wedding feast for his son. The other is a gory feast for the birds who eat up the carcasses of God's enemies. Oh, could I, it would be wrong to say, dang, Gina. <laughs> if everybody says it, then I won't feel bad that I said it. Everybody say, dang, Gina. As I see it, John is answering two questions in this 19th chapter, the passage of Scripture. Why? These are the two questions. Why does Jesus win the battle? And how does Jesus win the battle? Y'all want to know? Why? Because of who Jesus is. Jesus wins the battle because of who he is. He wins because given who he is, no one can beat him. No one can overcome him. Proven once and for all at the cross when Jesus let sin and evil and death have their way with him. When he let the dragon and the two beasts unleash all that they had on him. And they lost. In the moment Jesus died, graves were opened. That's found in Matthew 27, 20, 52. Three days later, Jesus 
himself emerged on the other side of the grave, proclaiming, and we see it in Revelations 1, I have the keys. There's a lot of weight. There's a lot of weight in that statement. I have the keys. Okay, number one, Jesus wins because he is called faithful and true. That's 19 and 11. John speaks of Jesus this way in the prologue of the book. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, Revelation 1.5. He is faithful to his father from the beginning to end. He is committed to his father's will. He is faithful all the way to the cross. He is true. That word John uses means reliable. Or better yet, genuine. True as over against false. He is the genuine article. As we say, the real thing. The point being that Jesus can therefore be the judge of all humanity for he alone has what it takes to judge righteously. No one has anything on him. There is nothing in his closet that can be brought out at a news conference to discredit him. At his trial before Pilate, people tried to discredit him, but they could not. The false charges against him did not impress anyone. Faithful and true. And therefore, he and he alone can sit as judge. John describes this in Revelations 20. I saw a great white throne. But we're not there yet. Number two, I have, I think, a seven, seven reasons why Jesus wins. There are probably more, but I'm just giving you a few. Jesus wins because his eyes are a flame of fire. Revelation 19, eyes give us away. If we look into one another's eyes, we can tell how we are doing in our souls. You could experiment with that. We could look at your neighbor and try to figure out what's going on. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Bright, pure, penetrating, purifying. His eyes not only look at us, his eyes look through us. Jesus misses nothing. Nothing is hidden from him. No one, no one can pull the wool over his eyes. He looks right into our face and right into the face of our enemies. We and they are leveled by his gaze. Number three, Jesus wins because upon his head are many diadems. Revelation 19, 12. Diadems are crowns. They're the symbol of victory. On his head are many victories, too many to count. It's a strange picture to imagine many crowns on the same head. But in the first century, it was not uncommon for a monarch to wear more than one crown in order to show that he was king of more than one country. There's a reason he uses the image. But something more is going on with this image. Many diadems on one head. Does that ring a bell? If you've been following with us? The previous chapters, Revelation 12, 3, the great dragon, 
the serpent of old, Satan the devil, is portrayed as having seven diadems on seven heads. In Revelation 13, the beast from the sea, the dragon's partner, is portrayed as having ten diadems, but they are on one head. Many crowns here rest on one head. It suggests many spheres of sovereignty under one single Lord. When Jesus, riding to the final battle, he rides having won many victories, and I am one of them. And so are you. Every human being who is walking with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a diadem on his head. Every person whom Jesus has set free from the ultimate powers of sin and evil and death is a diadem on his head. Many diadems, meaning by now billions. Okay, number four, Jesus wins because he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. That's 19 and 12. What is this? It's interesting to observe how many commentaries on Revelation try, they go to great lengths to try to tell you what that name is. But the text says no one knows except himself. Two points are being made here. First, in ancient times, it was thought that if you knew someone's name, and especially if you knew a God's name, you would exercise a certain level of control over him or her. To a degree, it's true. If you see your friend walking down the street ahead of you and you yell out their name, John Brockman! We just ended up downtown McKinney and he's on one block and I'm across the other side and I yell at his name and he turns. That, that, that exercise a degree of power. A name, do you, you get what I'm saying? They will stop and turn. When you want to get your child's attention, you may say their full name, Denver Cole Binion. This reminds me of when I was a little boy. I came home, I must have been in third or fourth grade, and I heard this little rhyme joke at school, and I really didn't fully understand what I was saying, but it had a bad word in it. And, and I told my mom, and it's just funny, they were all laughing at school, so I'm telling her, and I'm laughing, and she goes, David Lee Binion, I am ashamed. And I was like, I, what did I do? I don't know what to do. There was control in the power of declaring a full name. Are you with me? A name which no one knows except himself. It's a way of saying that Jesus Christ, as available as he has made himself to us, as compassionate as he is toward us, as passionate as he is for our wholeness, is under no one's control. Secondly, in ancient times, names revealed something about the person's nature or character. If you knew a person's name, you had a mini personality profile on him or her. Jesus sees the fisherman and says, you are Simon, a name which means shifting sand. But Jesus says, you shall be called Cephas or rock 
a new name drawing out a new character trait. No one knows his name except himself. Jesus has revealed himself to us and done so under many, many names. Lord, Savior, Son of God, Son of Man, Bread of Life, Light of the World, Faithful and True, and on it goes. But even as full as that revelation is, there is still more to be revealed. There's, there's still more to discover about him. The Apostle Paul, speaking of Jesus, says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. As much as Jesus has said about himself, there is still more to say. As much as we know about him, there is still more to know. Some suggest this word indescribable can also be translated not yet drawn out. Thanks be to God for his not yet fully drawn out gift. Ah. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Bride and Morning Star, and on and on it goes. But he has a name that no one knows except himself. There are no graduates from the Jesus School. We're always and forever undergrads. He has so much more to show us. And when you think you've figured it out, he opens up something new and reveals more. Number five, Jesus wins because he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's chapter 19, verse 13. What a powerful picture this is. This is the crucial image in the vision of Jesus, the warrior. The robe he wears is dipped in blood. That is to say, there is blood on his robe before he comes to the final battle. His robe is stained before. Everybody say before. Before he comes to the final battle. The question is, whose blood is it? from the whole book of Revelation and from the whole of the New Testament, there's only one answer. The blood on his robe is his own. His robe, both a priest's robe and a king's robe, is stained with his blood. This image leads to the great mystery of all history, to the great mystery of God. We may not yet know everything about Jesus, but this we know. He won the battle over sin and evil and death through the shedding of his blood. Jesus Christ won the victory over sin and evil and death when he shed his blood on the cross. This helps us understand chapter 19, verse 15. And he treads 
the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Notice that he does not use a future verb. He, he didn't say will tread. The text says he treads. Even now, Jesus' robe is stained because he has been stamping on the grapes of God's wrath. John is already referred to the wine press in Revelation 14. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the wine press. Now this is, again, this is back in chapter 14. I suggest to you that John is referring to the cross, which was outside the city of Jerusalem where the Lamb of God took on the full force of God's wrath. Where God himself, in the person of Jesus, took upon himself the full force of his own wrath. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Jesus, the warrior, rides to the final battle, which is never fought because he already fought it on the cross. His robe is already dipped in blood, his own blood. This explains why the armies of heaven, which follow Jesus, he on a horse and they on horses are dressed in linen. Remember that? Chapter 19, verse 14. If the armies were joining him in a battle to be fought, they would be dressed in soldiers' uniforms. But linen? Linen is the uniform of priests. Linen is the uniform of the bride. The armies of heaven join in the victory of Jesus the warrior by being priests, announcing and implementing the high priestly work of the king they overcame him the accuser because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives even to death that was back in revelation 12 john preached on that one that was your text number six jesus wins because as the text tells us 19 and 13 he is the word of God. He is the logos of God. I do not see how John could have written this title, the word of God, without thinking about his verse 70 something years before. I told you the book of the gospel of John and the revelation of Jesus Christ are two bookends of the life of John's writing. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus is the word of God means that Jesus is God's speech. Jesus is God's final speech. As the writer of Hebrews says, Paul, the living God, invisible, transcendent, all-powerful beyond description, has spoken for himself. And his speech, his word, is Jesus. I think John particularly has in mind one line from this passage of Scripture 
in the gospel of John, the first chapter. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Jesus wins because he is the one who created all things. Who can possibly overcome him? Who is going to be able to overcome the creator of the universe? What political power? What economic power? What military power? What spiritual power? The dragon? The dragon was created by Jesus. Not as a dragon, but as an angel. An archangel who in his lust for power and glory became a dragon. Is the dragon going to overcome the word of God? I mean, just really? I mean, is it, this is an easy answer. Is the dragon going to overcome the word of God? The creator of the universe? Even if the final battle would be fought, the outcome could never be in doubt. For it is not a battle between equals. Evil is bad, really bad. Evil is strong, really strong, but evil is no match for the word of God. Number seven. Zahir. You can come. Jesus wins because... On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every human king has a king. Jesus is king above all kings, governor above all governors. Every Lord has a Lord. Jesus is Lord above all lords. Kings and queens, lords and ladies. <laughs> Presidents and premiers and governors and mayors may not realize it or acknowledge it, but that does not change the reality. One may not be able to name the name of Jesus over the United States Capitol or in a public classroom, but that does not change reality. Jesus is king over the United States Capitol and every other nation's capital. Jesus is Lord in every classroom. The only issue is whether or not we will face reality and surrender to him. John says he will rule them with a rod of iron, 19 and 15. The word rule can also be translated shepherd. Most commentators argue that shepherd is the better translation because of that word rod. He will shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. Iron is strong. Iron, his rod is made of iron, enabling him to catch any sheep caught in the thicket and pull it out. No one can break free from the shepherd's grip. No one, no one can break free from the shepherd's grip. He is king of kings and lord of lords. In John's day, it was a more powerful claim than in ours because those are the words shouted to Caesar when he would enter the Senate. The Senate. They would say, King of kings and Lord of lords. Sorry, Caesar, but you are not. Emperor of Rome, yes, but King of kings, 
No, not emperor of emperors. You have a king, Caesar. You have a lord, Caesar. And he will be around long after you've retired. Jesus wins simply because of who he is, faithful and true. Eyes like a flame of fire. Many diadems on his one head. A name no one knows except himself. Clothed in a robe stained by his own blood. Word of God. King of kings. Lord of lords. Whom no one can overcome or withstand. How does he win the final battle? The answer to this question is also crucial. In the vision of Jesus, the warrior, we see that he has only one weapon. From his mouth, says John, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. Revelation 19.15. And the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat upon the throne, who sat upon the horse. The sword is his word, the word that proceeds from his mouth. Jesus wins simply by speaking. It's always been the case. In the beginning was the word. He said, let there be light, and there was. He said, let there be sea monsters, and there were. Out of nothing, he simply spoke into nothingness and something came into being. And when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he healed and liberated simply by speaking. He overcame the demonic simply by speaking. No fancy tricks, no show of a superior force, just a word, be gone. And they were on the Sea of Galilee in a storm churned up by demonic powers. Jesus stands up and simply says, hush, be still. Mm. And it was at the tomb of Lazarus, a dead man, four days in the grave. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he does simply because Jesus spoke. In this vision, Jesus, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the great crisis facing the first century church, the crisis of conviction. Who is going to win? Seven churches, who's going to win? Caesar with all of his military power or Jesus with his simple word? The revelation of Jesus Christ is written to bring the first century church back to confidence in Jesus and his word. The church in our century is facing the same crisis. Who's going to win? The left or the right? Economic, technological power? Or Jesus with his simple word? Are we going to get swept up into the storm of violence that we see in the earth? Are we going to get pulled into race wars? Are we going to get pulled in? Are we going to allow those issues to overcome us and take us down? Are we going to trust, have confidence in the word of God, the sword? I saw heaven opened 
Heaven is not a faraway place, way up there, way out there. Heaven is another dimension of reality, very close at hand. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within reach. He said, repent. Change the way you think. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change the way you think or you'll never see the kingdom. It's very close. The one who rides out of heaven when it is opened is not far away. Not far up there or way out there. He is very close at hand. And at any moment he can break through. That is what apocalypse means. You can see then the phrase, the second coming of Jesus Christ is debatable in how we define it. (laughs) Everything we look at in the book of Revelation, we realize things aren't as they seem. He is coming. He's not coming from a distant place place. One day he is simply going to pull back the curtain and he's going to make plain to the whole world what is true right now. Jesus wins because he already has. I saw heaven open and look. Here he comes. Here he comes. Now I love I love that this we're, we're, we're seeing the coming of Jesus in the 19th chapter, and we still have chapter 20 and 21 and 22. I'm so excited to dive into the next piece, the final piece of the story, this beautiful retelling of the whole story. The book of Revelation kind of capsulizes the whole story of the Bible. It shows us the the plagues sent to Egypt to release God's people to go into the wilderness and worship. We see we see the dragon trying to kill the child that a woman gave. That, that that's that's referencing Jesus. So that there's there's this beautiful thread. There's this beautiful thread. This beautiful picture that we see. When the, when the heavens open on that final day and we see Jesus and we'll understand how things really are. He wins just by showing up. He wins just by appearing into our midst. The darkness is just gone when he shows up. Every battle that we've ever fought just ends when he shows up. We, we, we wrestle because we, we, we only see through a glass... We, we, we don't have the full vision, but when he pulls back the curtain, we see, we see, and we understand, and we step, and we're clothed in linen, and we ride with him and, and see the victory of our great God. And I saw the heavens open. So God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for bringing transformation to our understanding, allowing us to see, allowing us to see what John saw. 
bringing clarity to us, Lord. And we still don't understand it all. It's we, we see these images and sometimes it's quite confusing. We're like, what are you really telling us? What are you saying? But you reveal more and more and there's always more to learn and more to see. Lord, I pray for this house, for this fellowship of believers. I pray for this community of people who you've knit together and established relationships and we start doing life together. But God, I pray for for a spirit of revelation that you'd give us eyes to see and you'd give us ears to hear so that when someone comes in our midst for the first time, we see the spotlight of heaven on them. When someone walks into the room struggling with sickness in their body, in your presence, we discover there is fullness and breath and life and healing is a part. It's the reward. It's the reward. It's who he is. It, he, he already, his robe is dipped in blood. We have salvation. Victory is ours, but the stripes, the scars are still on his back and they represent our healing and we walk in it because that's what he gave us. It's, it's part of who we are, the provision we need. The provision we need to just get through these crazy days is so available. The kingdom and all that comes with it is at hand. We just have to reach and grasp it. Help us, Lord, to grasp what you're showing us, what you're telling us. Help us be a people that will rise up and represent you and, dem and demonstrate your rule in the earth. In the name above every name. Now, perhaps there's someone in the room that maybe this is the first time uh, that you've ever been in an atmosphere like this and you don't know the Lord. And you're like, what is all of this about? I don't fully understand what he's saying, but something inside is tugging on my heart and I want to be a part of this. I'm not, I'm not saying that so that you'll be a part of our church. Uh, it'd be great if you were talking about life in his kingdom. I want to be a part of what you're talking about. I want to be a part of what you're saying. If that's you, I just, I just want to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer and accept Jesus into your heart. Maybe you've been away from him and you're coming back and it's been a while. Uh, or maybe you're watching online and you don't know him. This is your chance to give your heart to him. The life in the kingdom is not just so we can walk through life and enjoy the presence of the Lord and get goosebumps at church, but it's to win the lost and bring as many people into his kingdom as we can in the process so that all of us may experience his victory. So let's all pray this prayer together. For those that are watching on Facebook stream uh, or YouTube, whenever you get to see this on YouTube. I don't know, uh, I don't know when you're gonna get to see this, but some of you are watching live right now. But those of you in the room and those of you that are watching online, let's all pray this prayer together. God, I believe that you sent your son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I believe your son Jesus was born of a virgin, lived and died on a cross, spent three days in a grave, and then rose in the power of resurrection and ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to be present with us, to be our comforter. 
And so we ask you to come into our hearts. Come into my heart, Lord. Dwell in my heart. Let transformation come. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I surrender my life to you today in the name of Jesus. And everybody said amen. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.